0: think the reader is pretty abstract to me when I'm writing. What I'm I feel that I'm doing at least in the first few drafts of a poem is just trying to identify my own feelings and transcribe them in a way that is accurate and not simplifying and not reductive and not creating some false resolution where there is none. But I'm just trying to put my feelings into words and then I think as I revise the poems or revisit them I do ask myself, well, if someone knew nothing about me and nothing about this situation, am I providing all the information that a person would need? or Are there maybe other things that I should put in here to make the situation understandable to somebody who has no
1: context for it?
2: Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Jeff Smith. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story?, a podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have poet James Arthur, whose works have appeared in The New Yorker, The New Republic, Poetry, The New York Review of Books, and The American Poetry Review. He was born in Connecticut and grew up in Canada. But on a more local note, he is an assistant professor in the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins University. So welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, we're really delighted uh, to have you. I mean, to say that we have a poet on the show who's been in the New Yorker, I was, I was sort of over the moon when I, when I realized. <laughs> it's,
1: pretty, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty top
2: level stuff. So, oh, Thank you. I came across a line. You said you love writing about the places you don't belong. Yeah. I think writers have that feeling in general. We're always sort of one foot in a scene being part of a scene and then we're always sort of one foot out of it figuring how we're gonna write about that thing. So that was kind of what it brought to mind.
0: I think one thing I might have been talking about was when I was younger, I definitely was very restless and moved around from one place to another and resisted the idea of ever writing about where I was from. You know, I was not interested in writing about home. And I was much more interested in writing about places that were unknown to me. That was what to me seemed more exciting. That's changed a little bit, actually. I have found that the moment I'm writing about places where I'm from. But I also think that in general, for me, a poem is a way of figuring things out. A poem is a way of wrestling with something that's mysterious and trying to figure out what you think of it, how you feel about it. And that's, that's the pleasure of it for me.
1: It's, it's interesting coming from a, from a, a po- prose writing that I come from and, and Stephanie comes from, I, I think, uh, you know, prose writers, uh, generally try not to deal in ambiguities. Like our, <laughs> our, we have lots of words and lots of freedom mm-hmm. in, in writing lots of words that we don't, we don't, we're not supposed to be ambiguous, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and I, one of the things I was thinking about mm-hmm. as I was reading your stuff that, that it has a lot of emotion in it and a lot of, I mean, it, it delves into a lot of different things about how. How difficult it is to to write in an age in which poetry is not necessarily as accessible mm-hmm. uh, or as read really as it as it once was yeah. uh, I mean I know that for me. I don't read as much poetry as I did when I was in high school and college when I read a lot and I suspect that there are a lot of people in in the world who probably once they get out of school poetry is like oh good I don't have to deal with that <laughs> yeah anymore. yeah because it is hard cuz it's something that you have to engage in and and interact with in order to to in order to really get something out of it
0: yeah i i think it can be that way i i and for me the ambiguity I think of ambiguity I think there are a few different kinds and I I definitely don't want the sort of ambiguity that would r- lead someone to l- look at one of my poems and think what's that guy talking about? Yeah. I have no idea what he's saying. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that would that to my mind that would be an unproductive ambiguity. <laughs> uh, but I what I do want is for someone to read my poem and think, "Ooh, oh I I don't know how I feel about that. I feel something, Mm -hmm. but I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know whether I feel happy or sad or whether I think that's funny or not funny at all. Um, That's, that's what I'm after.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I I think good poetry does just that. I mean, it tries to, tries to get a reader to examine their own feelings about, about certain things. Uh, And I, I think good poetry does that. I mean, that's what I like about poetry. That's what I've always liked about poetry because it doesn't tell you, write out what you're supposed to think and feel and and as a prose writer one of the things i'm always going back and editing my stuff and rewriting it because i want to make sure that everybody who reads that sentence is going to feel the exact thing that i want them to feel (laughs) that's why i'm a terrible poet (laughs) (laughs) but how do you how do you go about like coming up with with a poem how do you how do you start with a poem because i i write two poems a year mm-hmm. in my journal at the at the end of my journal the last page of my journal is always a poem and i never go back and read it because they're always terrible but i've always thought about it because i've always wanted to how do you start it how do you how do you get a poem from your head to paper uh,
0: i think it must be different for everybody but for me it's it's a matter of starting with a, uh, a few lines a few words that somehow i feel are suggestive, uh, and they—I, you know—one or two lines will come to me, and I'll—I'll I'll like the sort of the meaning of them, and the mood of them, and the rhythm of them. All of those things—they just seem to dovetail meaningfully and expressively uh, in the poem, and then the poem is just sort of built by association, following one sound to another, one rhyme to another, one following sort of a metrical current sometimes uh, or just the echo of one consonant to another and it's or one rhetorical move to another rhetorical move and i much as much as i can i don't always find this easy because i too you know like to i i have to fight the impulse to tell the readers exactly what i think they should think (laughs) Uh, um but uh I try to resist that impulse because i don't I don't think it's good for my poems and i uh, I try to just postpone as long as possible that my own decisions about what my poem means or what I want it to mean, and I just try to explore sounds trusting that it's going to end up somewhere interesting if I just build it phrase by phrase and delete the phrases that I feel are simplifying or that are false in one way or another and just keep trying to deepen it and be honest and, uh, articulate whatever it is that I feel.
2: And we were talking, um, a moment right before we started recording about your poem, Good Night Moon. Yeah. And it was a poem that both Jeff and I read for the first time as we were powerful, doing our homework. And it was incredibly powerful. And as we were kind of chatting a little bit before the show, you were saying that you didn't start that poem out to be where it ended. I mean, that started as just a moment you were having with your son and then sort of this deeper thing sort of evolved in the writing of that poem for you.
0: That's right. Yeah. The poem, uh, the jumping off point for the poem was walking around with my son on my shoulders, and he was looking up at the moon and was saying, Moom, Moom, and he, he couldn't pronounce the letter N. So for him, it was just M-O-O-M, uh, and he, we were reading Goodnight Moon. And so I was sort of f- thinking about that and writing about that and trying to capture that, but it, I felt somehow I felt sad, and the poem, as I was writing it, didn't seem like it was really getting there, and I didn't know why I felt sad. Uh, and then I realized, you know, in writing, in writing, writing it through, I realized where the poem was going to go and I realized why I was feeling sad. <laughs>
2: right. And so, and, and I think this gets back to something you were saying a moment ago about, you know, there's this, there's a, um, a push and pull within that poem. So as you know, both Jeff and I start out reading this poem, it's this moment between a father and a son and a very adorable moment where a kid is, you know, saying moon instead of moon. And then the very next line, it moves to a very deeply emotional moment between you and your wife, and um, there were there were lines there that just, you know, we're kind of moving in this direction. All of a sudden, we have to slam on brakes, and now we're sort of being pulled in the other direction. And that moment of, as a reader, I'm thinking, I don't know how I feel like like I really have to invest and kind of stop at that line where, you know, the child that was lost was smaller than a watermelon seed. And that moment, you know, I just stopped right there and I've, you know, not read poetry a lot since, since college, but I remember I got to that moment and I stopped and I had to go back and do it again because I, I felt that like, I'm kind of moving in one direction and now I'm sort of being kind of, kind of pulled in another direction. And it was that, pulling of those two moments of this kind of this beautiful sweet moment with the sun and then this really deeply emotional moment and there was something i think it was the beauty of poetry i think sometimes is in that breaking in that in that pulling the reader in sort of two different directions and i don't know i don't even know if i have a question in that so much as i just found that was so deeply powerful as a reader Thank to, you. to come to that poem that way
1: it was. I, 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 not to interrupt whatever you were going to say, but I had to actually stop reading at that point and go away and come back to it because I couldn't, I couldn't finish it. It was just too, the, the juxtaposition was too great for me. I mean, it was, it was way too powerful and I had to step away and come back to the poem five minutes later so I could finish it. Mm. Well,
0: thank you. That's uh, that, that's uh, high praise. Thanks.
2: So as a, so as a poet, when you're crafting <clears throat> that moment, is that, are you, do you think of how the reader is going to pull that, or is that something that you're crafting? Because sometimes we we write for a reader, and sometimes we write for ourselves, and sometimes the two meet. Sometimes they don't. As a poet, are you are you moving in that space at all?
0: I think the reader is pretty abstract to me when I'm writing. I what I'm I feel that I'm doing at least in the first few drafts of a poem is just trying to identify my own feelings and transcribe them in a way that is accurate and not simplifying and not reductive um, and not creating some false resolution where there is none. Um, but I'm just trying to put my feelings into words. And then I think as I revise the poems or revisit them, I do ask myself, well, if someone knew nothing about me and nothing about this situation, am I providing all the information that a person would need? Or is, are there maybe other things that I should put in here to make right. the situation understandable to somebody who has no context for it? Uh, but at least in those early ver- in the early phases of writing a poem, I'm not thinking about anything other really than trying to just be true to the emotional impulse.
1: How, how long is your is your editing process obviously you have one so so when you when you first start writing a poem do you do like when I start writing something I just dump in as much as I can I just vomit on the page and I throw, throw it and then my editing process is I take out all this stuff that junk. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so, yeah so I'm wondering as a poet is it is it, a, is it a similar process do you like throw everything on the page and then go back later and you're like all right well here's all this stuff that doesn't mean anything to what I'm really trying to say
0: ideally I think that when I'm really writing well I do that I think um uh, I think that when I'm not writing well, I think, oh, I have a clever idea. This is gonna be so great. Uh, you know, I plan the whole thing out ahead of time. And then of course the poem never never actually amounts to anything until I throw out my entire plan for it and yeah. uh and allow the poem to surprise me. But uh, but I uh but I think yes, the process you describe is is how I write when I'm writing well, I think, which is that Uh, I'm just trying to take whatever gets offered by the id or the unconscious, however you like, or the muse, however you like to think of it, that, that irrational part of the brain and, um, putting it down on the page and then later on in a cooler frame of mind, making some more reasoned choices about what belongs and what's, what needs to be changed or cut. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think for me, uh, being not a not a poet, I'm, I come from a creative nonfiction background, so I feel like I've got a lot of words to be able to mm-hmm. get where I want to get. And the one thing that I've always admired and the one thing that I've always found so difficult about poetry is that you have a sort of a limited amount of words. You have a limited amount of space on the page. I can take a whole novel, but really a poem it has to pack. It's got a wallop a punch in mm-hmm. a very concise, efficient way. Um, and I always just find, I'm so impressed, impressed, or I I think I find that that's the true sort of, I don't know, that's the true pinnacle, I guess, of poetry is being able to, to wallop that punch with just a few words. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I don't know how to, I don't know how to really, I guess I'm not being very articulate about that, <laughs> but it just seems that with your work, you're able to kind of portray these scenes, these sort of of arresting moments with this brevity and this efficient sort of concise language to get there. And that to me can only come through just years and years and years of going at that practice.
0: Definitely. It gets easier with practice uh, for sure. But I also the intensity of it is I think what appeals to me, the trying to, Trying to say a lot or suggest a lot in as few words as possible. It, uh, it makes the expression, uh, distilled and intense. And it also, it sort of appeals to um compulsive perfectionists i think <laughs> <laughs> right. uh that yeah. right. uh, you you know uh i feel like i could never write a novel you know i would i mean i would love to write a novel but i just feel like i would never get past page 6 you know cuz right. i would just be endlessly going back and fiddling with the phrases on pages 1 2 and 3 <laughs> <Right>. you know <laughs> yeah. exactly uh
1: it's
0: you know i think i think the forms that we write in have to kind of I think that determined by who we are. Yeah, though.
1: they they sort of they do sort of come come by what we are, and <laughs> yeah. how we came into writing to begin with, don't they? Yeah. 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 Well, how how did you come since we are mm-hmm. there? How did you come to write poetry? Why, what 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 drew you as a writer to poetry as opposed to any other form of writing? I mean, the myriad other things that you could write?
0: Well, truthfully, I wrote a collection of short stories and I uh it took me that it, I had to write the collection of short stories to realize that I just was no good at all as a short story <laughs> writer. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, in the course of writing the short stories, I kept writing poems just sort of for pleasure and as a release. And at a certain point, I realized that all my stories were kind of uh, phony uh, and boring and and imitative. And I felt so much more free to be myself and just – felt less, so much less inhibited in linguistically and expressively writing poems. And then I I was sort of reluctant to reach the conclusion that I should write poetry because I sort of <laughs> had this idea that I was going to write some novel and retire to a house in the country and just keep writing novels. I don't think it works out that way for most novelists either. But I had that dream, and, and I had to give up that dream entirely when I decided to be a poet. Wow.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, that is a dream we all have. Yeah. yeah <laughs> exactly. Nobody starts out being a writer thinking I'm gonna I'm just gonna be poor and alone for the rest of my yeah. Life. yeah. Right. That's, That's right. Awesome. Yeah.
2: Well, as you know, we're, so we're kind of talking a little bit on that topic um, of success and and whatnot. I mean, you've had some serious success. I mean, you've been in New Yorker and and the New Republic. And, um, as a writer, how do you how do you do that? Like, how, I mean, how do you sort of bridge that gap? Yeah. I mean, you know, just a, you know, when I was, I was like, Oh, he's been the New Yorker. And then suddenly, you know, I was like, Whoa, this is pretty cool. Like, but I don't know how you kind of walk in that door.
0: I, um, I started with tiny, tiny magazines. The first magazine that took one of my poems, had a, I think a 60% acceptance rate. So they, they, they literally <laughs> took more poems than they said <laughs> no to, uh, you know, um, and I, um, just, I was lucky in that I met, you know, early on when I was first starting to write poems, I met uh, some writers, uh, particularly a Canadian poet by the name of Matt Robinson, you know, uh, some poets who are just a year or two older than me and a little further along and more mature in their both (laughs) probably personally uh, but also (laughs) professionally and uh, they were just very organized about sending their poems out to magazines and they just seemed to have a plan you know for every poem that was taken by a magazine they would just aim after that for another magazine that was slightly more selective uh, with the idea that they would just you know Keep raising the bar one inch at a time uh, just to keep challenging themselves and give themselves something to aspire to at all at every moment and that's that's what I did too uh, I think that if I'd started sending my first poems to the New Yorker and poetry, I would have just gotten my, <laughs> my heart broken, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, yeah.
1: uh, the string of rejection is, is difficult for many writers to deal with. Yeah. I used to work in, in, uh, research. I was, I was an, an administrator at a university for a real long time. And my, the professor that I worked for would write lots of scientific papers and his philosophy to his students were, you send your paper to the best magazine first. That's where you send it to nature and you send it to science first and then you work your way down. Yeah. And I, my writing philosophy was always like yours. Start small and and work your way up.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, I do know some people who just seem to suffer from no no lack of – uh, confidence whatsoever and you know they can be rejected by uh the biggest magazines a hundred times and it won't it won't deter them one bit um but i'm i wasn't like that i needed little encouragements along the way to persuade myself that it was that i wasn't just kidding myself and that it was that it, that my aspirations were were reasonable and that they were something that i could they weren't ridiculous aspirations, but something that I could devote my life to and it wouldn't just be some kind of
1: pipe dream. So when you gave up on the idea of writing a novel and you and you went to poetry, did you – that was the point when you said, okay, then I'm going to be a professor? Or, or did, the, did, the, did the teaching part sort of grow out of, well, I'm going to write poetry and I better find a way to make money – Doing that kind of thing, so maybe teaching is the way to go.
0: The professor part grew out of having a kid. It's like, okay. well, I guess I better get a job.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. better
0: start saving up for college. Better make sure that we actually have health insurance. Yeah, yeah. When my son was born, we had four thousand dollars to our name, and and uh, we uh, we were not we didn't have very good insurance. So we uh, he was a preemie actually. So we got oh, wow. we got hit with. Um, I think the medical bill was $160,000, okay. uh, and our 20% of that was $32,000, which was eight times what we had in the bank. Uh, wow. And uh, we were actually really lucky. A, a, a Catholic charity stepped in and erased most of the uh, our wow. financial oh, obligation. But I, yeah. but it did make me think, all right, I better get a job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, but I still have to pay bills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: So now you're um at a uh, you're with the Johns Hopkins, and yeah. I also read that you're with you. You do some time in Ireland.
0: I was yeah, I was there last year for last year. for gotcha. seven months through the Fulbright program. I was on uh, junior leave from Hopkins, which is sort of like sabbatical, but for okay. professors who aren't tenured yet. And they um, and I uh, went applied to go to Ireland through the Fulbright program and teach at Queen's Belfast for for a semester which i loved
2: wow yeah holy smokes that'd be incredible yeah, yeah. it was
0: lovely yeah
2: Absolutely. and so now um we have this salisbury poetry week i want to make sure that we give that a good plug um you're gonna be in salisbury uh the week first week of uh april that's right yeah that. so um want to tell us a little bit about how you got kind of pulled into pulled into locally
0: here? yeah well uh, uh tara elliott originally uh, contacted me and suggested that I, uh, that I come out, I guess, um, uh, we had met at the Lewis writers conference and, uh, she said that she was, uh, interested in bringing me to Salisbury. And then I guess, uh, she got a number of organizations involved and, and, uh, so it's going to be a busy, busy few days, but I'm going to visit a number of classrooms and meet with a number of different groups of writers. I'm really excited about it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, I mean that's, that's an exceptional chance for, especially I know you're doing some stuff with kids. I mean, that's an exceptional chance for them to really have, you know, an expert, you know, someone who really has the, you know, the, gosh, I'm just not being very eloquent today. At all. <laughs> but, you know, it's for for kids to have that no, level of expertise yeah. come down and be able to work with them. I mean, that's, especially here on the shore. I mean, that's, yeah, that's I mean, kind really, of unheard of.
1: I, 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 I've only been here for a few years, but I know that, that people out here can feel very remote from the rest of the world. And so, to have a world class poet come out and spend um. some time talking to them, I know I know personally some elementary school kids that would fawn at your feet uh, oh. <laughs> to, to get the chance to, to speak to and talk to a real a real poet.
0: Oh well, thanks. That's 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 uh, sweet of you to say that. I'm re- I'm I'm excited about it. I've heard great great things about the about the students. I'm yeah. really yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, they're gonna be they're gonna be pretty excited. So, yeah.
1: well, uh, one of the things um, that struck me while you were while I was listening to your to your reading is the way that you the way that you two things. One is is the way that you read your poems. I mean, you have a very there's a there's a rhythm and a and a a, a musical quality to the, to the way you read your poems. And the second thing was the fact that you did them all from memory. Yeah. Um, Do do you, whenever you read in public, do you do, do you always read from memory? And do you have all of your poems committed to, to what is, must be a remarkable brain? (laughs) (laughs) I I don't have them all memorized. There
0: are some that uh, just don't lend themselves to um, public performance. (laughs) And so those ones, I don't, I guess, I think maybe like, I think I have like 70 to 80% of my poems memorized. And then there, there are some that I just never never perform and i don't
1: really you know i don't really have those ones down so but you only perform the ones that you have memorized you never perform the ones that you don't that you don't have
0: sometimes i memorize something you know so that i can perform it um but i have some poems that i just think are not um they're really for the solitary reader and i just feel that they wouldn't they wouldn't really work um that they're that for one reason or another they 're just kind of the the musical quality in them is kind of subdued, maybe or they're the kind of talky or they're um or they're just sort of hard to digest at a, in at a in one sitting, and those poems I tend not to perform uh and so i maybe i maybe I have them from memory or partially from memory, but I I never uh, performing actually sort of cements the poems, uh, so it's it's a bit it's sort of circular. The ones that I know I perform, and the more I perform them, the mo- more I know them. Uh, um, and I guess there are also some poems that I have had memorized at one time or another that probably get I get a little rusty uh, on them if I haven't performed them lately. Um, but in general, yeah, I try to I try to write all my poems for performance, and I. And I
1: that was going to be my next question. Do you write then then thinking as you write them that they're they're going to be performed yeah, with that always with that lyrical quality to them
0: always, yeah, I mean, I never write a poem where I think i 'm never going to perform this one i 'm always aiming for performance it 's just that sometimes when it 's done, I think, ah. Well, maybe that's just one for the
1: solitary <laughs>
0: reader. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. Well, for for anybody out there listening, I highly recommend mm-hmm. you go to the to the pod to the website and and listen to the readings because the the, the poems are really remarkable and and uh, you do have a, a, a just the, the the way that you read the poems it kind of reminded me of, uh, of well now I'm going to forget the Irish poet's name but there's the the famous Irish poet who who Oh, man. Yes.
0: Haney or Yates or,
1: uh, or, or... He he, he, he was uh, in the 20th century because you can hear him read his poems still. Uh, yeah. But I don't know the name's yeah. Game. yeah, oh well. Yeah.
2: But I will say when I was listening to you do the readings of the three poems that you did yeah. for us, one of the things that I noticed in addition to the kind of cadence and kind of the, the movement that you gave the poems when you were reading them, the other thing I noticed was kind of this really interesting way and, and i don't want to say playful because i don't want to undermine it in any way but almost like a, a kind of playful but it was a weaving between themes as you were not themes but a weaving between things that mm-hmm. as you were moving like for example in the poem drone uh, that you read for us which was the second poem i noticed there was sort of this weaving between my country tis of thee going back into the imagery that you were using Mm -hmm. and I just sort of found myself almost like I was in a river or I was in the ocean where I was just kind of kind of bobbing from one to the other I kind of felt like I was almost kind of rising and falling as -hmm. you were kind of weaving this thing that we all know very well my country tis of thee with this the imagery of the drone and then kind of also playfully wrapping that into a nature and a bee sting and that sort of and the cicadas and all that, and I just, I just felt with that moment that I was sort of being transported, and it was just sort of, I guess, the question that I was kind of arriving at was, is that how do how do you come to that? You know, because I feel like for prose writers, we spend pages developing that sort of that rhythm, mm-hmm. but you just instantly fall right into it or you're you're instantly able to drop us right in
0: well it it, thank you it uh that particular poem drone i uh, it definitely wasn't the process of writing it was not instant at all (laughs) (laughs) And, and that one gave me a lot of grief uh trying to write it but i um why it gave me grief is that in a lot of the earliest versions of it i had you know, very settled opinions, and and I still do, you know, about drone bombers and uh, the I mean the drone warfare. I um and I felt that I wanted to write about it, but every time I sat down to write, I could just feel the poem kind of getting suffocated under the weight of my own opinion, politics, desire to argue for my beliefs and, uh, I felt that the only way that I could thwart that in in the end was to allow some play and discovery and, uh, into the poem as a sort of a compensating factor. So I, uh, just riffed on all the different meanings of drone. So a drone bees and bagpipe drone and cicada drone. and um, and just tried to allow them to all get blended together, um, and uh, that made it hard for me to take too straight a path to what it was that I wanted to say. Um, but the, and then the question that I ended up having to unravel as I wrote the poem is why am I why am I doing this at all? What you know? Well, I don't just want this to be a bunch of silly word plays. What am I? I don't want to trivialize my subject matter with a bunch of punning. So what am I, what am I doing here? What am I saying? Um, and then I ended up feeling that, that, the for me, and I, you know, I firmly believe that a poem can be interpreted many ways, but for me, the, there's kind of a metaphorical relationship between the drone warfare, because it's, Warfare conducted at a distance of thousands of miles dehumanizes the people on the ground. There's actually not a human being literally inside the drone, so that's another kind of dehumanization. All these different drones kind of melding together into one voice makes it not entirely a human voice. Uh, And we talk about drones being people who are automatons in one way or another, and that is sort of realized that's what the poem that's where the poem seemed to be leading just this idea of dehumanization
2: yeah and that's why i kind of hesitated when i said the word playful because it certainly is a very sophisticated topic with you know everyone's got you know an opinion on on mm-hmm. you know these sort of highly political things but i just noticed that the way that you kind of like i said to kind of weave these kind of lines back and forth Makes it more accessible or it makes it less uh, dense because that's a very, you know, when you say, Well, I'm gonna talk about drone warfare in a poem, I mean, that's kind of like a dense sort of bit to pull out, but then you're able to deliver it to your reader in such a way that it's not so heavy.
0: Yeah, well, readers, I think readers want to be involved. Readers don't just want to be told what to think. You know, if I, if a reader encounters a poem about drone warfare, they might think, Well, I agree. With this poet's politics, or I disagree with this poet's politics, but one way or another, if the thesis, if the poem has a thesis that's really clear, people are just going to look at the poem and they're either going to agree or disagree, but they're not going to engage imaginatively and they're not going to feel anything. Um, and I think that readers want to be involved in the work of making the meaning and deciding how they feel about it. and working it out. So I feel I don't ever want my poems to just be um, difficult for the sake of difficulty, but I do I do try to work, I try to kneecap my own <laughs> desire to, to communicate exactly what I think. And I sort of feel that really what I'm trying to do is articulate a question and let the readers work out what they think and what they feel. Uh, and that 's what I like in a poem i want i don 't want the poem to be mysterious in an irritating sort of way where i don 't feel i don 't have no no idea what the poem 's talking about but i i do like it when it's mysterious in the sense that I read it and I feel that I have to process it and have to think about it and have to feel my way through it. And that's I feel that to produce that effect for a reader, uh, I can't. I can't do all the thinking and feeling work myself. I have to leave some of that to the reader.
1: Do you know what kind of poetry almost all readers like? <laughs> Tell me.
2: <laughs> I bet you're gonna go with Tony's. Limerick's.
1: Yes, Tony's Limerick.
2: Yeah, so if uh, if you listen to the show today and you liked it, you can go to so what's your story and there, if you click on the contact us link, if you send us uh, your name, your email, and a word, Tony will make it into a limerick. I'll make it a haiku, and we'll put a stamp on it and it's we snail name. mail. <laughs> yeah, good old fashioned snail mail. Yeah, we'll send it to
1: you. Uh, well, uh, Steph, uh, this is the part I think where you thank the cast.
2: Oh, gosh. Well, James, thank you so much for being here and, and hanging out with us and talking about My your work. My
1: pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, for, thank for, you. It the a pleasure chatting with you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. It's been great being on the show. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at com, where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio.
2: And if you like it, then feel free to give us a good review. Tell your story.